We're looking at verses uh, 14 to 23 today in Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in Luke 11 during this season of Advent. Advent, um, of course, is a time of waiting. It's, it's a double waiting, as we mentioned earlier. On the one hand, we're awaiting our celebration of Jesus' first coming at Christmas. And at the same time, on the other hand, we're also awaiting Jesus' coming back again to restore all things, to complete his victory over everything harmful, dark, and evil. And this morning's passage helps us answer the question, how do we wait? What do we do as we wait? Uh, So let's take a look at our passage. Jesus was going around driving out demons. There were people in Jesus' day who were troubled. They were plagued by what seemed to be mental illness or seizures or deafness, muteness. Various symptoms which left their sufferers unable to function, bound um, from living normal lives, from freely living up to their potential as human beings. And Jesus was coming along and, and rebuking spirits which Jesus discerned were behind these bondages and these maladies. And Jesus was driving out these spirits and, and afterwards the victims were set free They were restored to health and they were able to function and to begin living normal lives again. Now, what are we to make of this? It's strange for us today, isn't it? It's not what you normally expect to read about in your news feed or uh, to see on your way from your car to the grocery store entrance. Well, never mind how we would respond um, when, when we come across such things today. How uh, do we respond when we read that Jesus regularly engaged in these activities back then? Because, in fact, driving out demons, as Luke calls it, was a key and a central part of Jesus' ministry. Well, for many people today, there are one of two responses. One is, well, Jesus did that back then, but that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Those were Bible times, you know, the age of miracles. God was doing something special then that God doesn't do anymore. The second response is, well, come on, then is no different than now. We know now that seizures and mental illness and other maladies have medical causes or psychological causes. They didn't know that back then, so in their primitive minds, they blamed all kinds of stuff on spirits. You know, good spirits, bad spirits, spirits here, spirits there. That's just how they explain stuff, but we now know that that's not really what was going on. And so if there was any truth at all behind these Jesus stories, they must be explained on a medical or a psychological level. Perhaps Jesus just had a a special way with people, an intuitive ability to naturally help them find healing. Have you heard that explanation? Well, those back in Jesus' day were also trying to make sense of what Jesus was doing when he was driving out demons. And some of them, we read, accused Jesus of drawing on dark or evil powers to drive out demons as if it was some sort of black magic or sorcery. They attributed what Jesus was doing to his being in league with Beelzebul which was a nickname for Satan, the chief evil spirit of a whole host of evil spirits. So even back then, people found what Jesus was doing to be spooky. (laughs) But notice they didn't deny or question that Jesus was doing it. Evidently, it was happening clearly enough right in front of their faces. They just questioned what it meant. 
They said, if Jesus is doing this weird, magical stuff, it must be because he's on the dark side. He's in league with Satan, and, and that's why he can cast out Satan's underlings. So what do you think? What do you make of stories like today's story, which give reports of Jesus going up to people who are in some sort of bondage, which is damaging their lives, and Jesus is driving out evil spirits, and and now these people are free again and normal again. What is going on? What does this mean? And does it have any relevance for us today? All right, one answer is yes. Well, Jesus himself gives his answer uh, and his explanation of what's going on in today's passage. Obviously, Jesus can't respond in his passage to our modern-day concerns and questions, but he does respond to the criticisms raised by those in the crowd which had gathered around him back then. Now, quickly, before we look at Jesus' response, do you realize what a devastating accusation Jesus' critics were making against him here? These critics were painting Jesus in the darkest possible light. They were accusing him of being in league with dark and sinister forces, the very embodiment of evil. They were seeking to utterly destroy Jesus' reputation and to besmirch his name. I mean, these were the days before Harry Potter. Before culture decided it was cool to be into wizardry and other dark things. No, the Jews of Jesus' day knew, what Christians still know today, that dabbling in the realm of sorcery and other spirits besides God is utterly evil and dangerous and bondage-creating. And that's what they were accusing Jesus of. Well, against these accusations, Jesus makes three arguments. First, he argues in verse 19, and I'm going to take these three a bit out of order. He argues that other people back then were driving out demons too. He calls them your followers, or literally as in some translations, your sons. But here, Jesus is referring to Jews, perhaps followers of of some of the religious leaders or rabbis in the crowd, and these followers were also driving out demons, Jesus points out. We know from history that Jewish exorcists did exist at that time. They had certain methods, certain um, prayers were involved, repeating certain phrases were involved, and even uh, getting the victims to smell certain pungent, smelly roots was involved, which gave these exorcists limited success in driving out evil spirits. And evidently, casting out evil spirits in this way was accepted as as a godly thing to do by the Jews back then. These other exorcists were not being accused of being in league with the devil. And so Jesus is arguing with his accusers, since when is casting out demons in and of itself a bad thing or an evil thing? It's not. You know that. Your own people do it. So why the double standard? Why is my doing it all of a sudden wrong? Then Jesus makes his second argument, verse 17. Referring to Satan's realm, he says, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Jesus really is an evil sorcerer, empowered by powerful evil spirits, and is attacking other evil spirits, then people are seeing a civil war in Satan's kingdom. They're witnessing the downfall of Satan's reign right before their eyes. How likely is it that Satan would be doing himself in in this way? 
which leads to the third argument, which is an extension of the second. Basically, Jesus argues, if you think I'm some sort of spooky magician or some sort of evil sorcerer sent by Satan to deceive the people by doing strange miracles, certainly the miracles I would choose wouldn't be to drive out Satan's own forces. I mean, that would be an army divided against itself, a kingdom against itself. That makes no sense. So basically, to sum up, Jesus is saying this. I'll grant you one thing. Satan's kingdom is crumbling right before your eyes. It's falling apart. It's being attacked and defeated by me. You've got that part right. But the idea that through me, Satan is doing this to himself is a crazy one. It makes no sense. No, here's the true explanation for what I'm doing. Verse 20. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, Jesus says. The finger of God is a phrase those of you who know your Old Testaments have probably heard before. It's used in the story of Moses when God raised up Moses to set God's people free from Egypt. And to do so, God used Moses to bring various plagues on the people. Now, at first, Pharaoh's own magicians and enchanters could duplicate these miracles through their own dark arts. But as the plagues ramped up and got more powerful, these enchanters no longer could, and they admitted to Pharaoh in Exodus 8:19, this is the finger of God. In other words, they were saying, what Moses is doing can't be explained anymore. It can't be replicated by any magic we know. God is actually at work here. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look at the signs. Look at what's happening around you. Satan is being driven out. His forces are in retreat. He is being defeated. Whether you think Satan is doing this to himself or not, either way, you are watching his downfall right before your eyes. Can you see it? But guess what, Jesus continues. It would make no sense that Satan would do this to himself. So guess what this is then? It's the finger of God. God has sent me to rout Satan's kingdom. God has sent me, just like Moses, to set the captives free, to lead them on a new exodus out of bondage and captivity. That, Jesus says, is what my driving out demons means. The kingdom of God has come upon you. In my actions, God's kingdom is arriving, attacking and defeating the kingdom of darkness and setting the captives free. The revolution has begun. Then Jesus tells a parable to highlight this good news. He reminds the crowds of a phenomenon that they were very familiar with in their day. After all, they lived in an occupied territory. The land of the Jews was was occupied by the Roman Empire. And stationed in this occupied land were various Roman officials and military leaders, and they lived in large mansions and palaces, each with a large contingent of soldiers to protect the premises and to to exert Roman control over that region. Of course, Roman soldiers were famous for their armor and their weaponry. And so Jesus begins, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe, right? If you were a thief and you wanted to steal something, you probably were not going to target the strong man with all the armor guarding his house. (laughs) No, you were going to pick on someone weaker, someone more unprotected, someone unsuspecting. 
unless you were even stronger than the strong man. In that case, verse 22, if you were even stronger, then you might attack and overpower the strong man, taking away the armor in which the man trusted, and then dividing up the plunder in the strong man's house. And that, Jesus says, is exactly what I have come to do to the strong man, to Satan. He's an enemy-occupying force among my people. He's got his captives, his possessions in his house, and nobody can do anything about it. Nobody, that is, except one who's even stronger than the strong man, stronger than Satan. But guess what? That's me. I'm even stronger. In me, the very finger of God, the very power of God is at work. So like God did with Moses in Egypt, so I am doing with Satan himself. I have come to him, attacked his house, overpowered him. I've taken away the armor in which he trusts. And now I am free to plunder his house and to divide up his spoils. That's what I'm doing. That's what you're seeing as you see me driving out demons and setting the captives free. I'm plundering Satan's house. So here's the good news proclaimed in this passage. Jesus has overpowered the strong man and is plundering his house. Jesus has disarmed the enemy and is setting the captives free. This is the kingdom of God coming to earth. A revolution is afoot, a heavenly invasion. Jesus has come from heaven with the power of God. He has overpowered Satan, and now he is plundering his house and setting the captives free. Good news? So question, when exactly did Jesus overpower the strong man? Many think it was at Jesus' temptation. When Satan, the tempter, came to Jesus and took his best shot at trying to get Jesus to trip up. But Satan failed. He proved to have no power over Jesus. And now Jesus was free to plunder Satan's possessions. Others think Jesus overpowered the strong man later when he died on the cross and rose again, breaking the back of sin and defeating death. Either way, the strong man has been overpowered. Either way, the truth remained, remains, Jesus has overpowered the strong man and is plundering his house. Do you believe it or do you have doubts? I, I guess if, if we now know that none of this spirit stuff is real, then it wasn't real back then either. And Jesus was mistaken about what he was doing and about what it meant. And his opponents were mistaken about what Jesus was doing too. Because remember, they didn't deny that he was driving out demons, setting people free. They just denied by what power he was doing it. Or on the other hand, maybe Jesus did that stuff back then, but it doesn't happen anymore. Maybe now that Jesus is gone, the strong man is back in charge of his house again. And Jesus is no longer setting the captives free. Well, you'll have to decide for yourself which possibility makes more sense. I, for one, believe that the strong man has been overpowered and that Jesus still wants his house to be plundered. Therefore, I believe that the message of this passage is still good news for us today, that Jesus has overpowered the strong man and is plundering his house. Let me give you three reasons why I believe this. First, because when Jesus handed his ministry off to his first followers, they continued to drive out demons and to set captives free. We read about it both in the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. Second, we know that in the early church, they continued to cast out demons as well. 
In fact, a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus, when a church was preparing a convert for baptism, driving out demons was a normal, regular part of that process. Third, followers of Jesus are still driving out demons today. Some of you in this church have been involved in this, either helping others find freedom or receiving freedom yourselves. And others of you, while you've never experienced something as dramatic as seeing a demon be cast out, like me, you've experienced feeling uh, oppressed spiritually in one way or another. And, And then you've turned to Jesus and you've experienced freedom and deliverance from that oppression. Because, of course, driving out demons isn't the only way that Jesus plunders the strong man's house. Jesus is still helping addicts find freedom from addiction. Jesus is still helping those stuck in a sin that they can't seem to stop to find freedom and victory over that sin. Jesus is still helping those deceived or misguided by various mental lies that they're telling themselves and that they're believing to to discover truth in a way which then sets them free to experience new freedom and joy. If you've experienced any of that, would you please just tell Jesus thank you right now? It's still the Thanksgiving season, right? (laughs) Jesus has overpowered the strong man and he is plundering his house. Not to mention that most everyone in this room has experienced the transformation of receiving a new heart like we looked at in past weeks. You didn't know Jesus. You were far from God. And in your own heart, you realized you couldn't please God. But Jesus came into your life, gave you a new heart, and set you free to pursue God, to please God, to love other people in ways that you couldn't before, right? So what does this mean for us then today? What does it mean that Jesus has overpowered the strong man and is plundering his house? It means that it's there For the taking. The captives in the strong man's house are there for the taking. The strong man can't keep his hold on them anymore. As we celebrate Advent, as we wait for Jesus to come again, how do we wait? We wait believing the good news that Jesus has already overpowered the strong man and is plundering his house. And so it's there for the taking. The captives, the plunder, which are in the strong man's house, are there for the taking. And if that's true, then we need to wake up in two ways. First, we need to wake up to the battle. We do not live in peace times. There's a battle raging around us. If you have eyes to see, the impacts are there. There is rubble and destruction. There is propaganda and deception. There are the wounded. There are those taken captive. And as we live our lives, we can just steer carefully around the victims and go on with our own comfortable lives, pretending that this is just the way things are going to be for others. Or we can engage. We can recognize that there's a revolution taking place. A a rescue operation is in progress. And we have been called by Jesus to participate. Jesus has overpowered the strong man and calls us to help plunder his house. In fact, Jesus actually tells us that we can't be neutral in this battle. We can't actually go on with comfortable civilian lives in the midst of a war. Rather, he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Jesus is calling us all to make a choice. Will you join his cause or, or will we not? Because to not join with him, he says, is to side with the enemy. It's to ignore the captives that Jesus is seeking to set free. So th- this passage in Luke challenges us, do we really believe there's a battle going on? That Jesus has engaged the enemy and is setting the captives free. And that if we choose not to join Jesus' side, we are making a de facto choice to stay with the enemy. We need to wake up to the battle. That's the first thing to wake up to. The second, we need to wake up to the victory that we can enjoy. I love how uh, former missionary Amy Carmichael put it. She said, we work from the victory, not toward it. We work from the victory because it's there for the taking. There's so many stories of, of those who've understood this victory and participated in it that, that I could tell. Let me just close with one story that I love. It's about uh, Dr. Harry Ironside, well-known evangelist back around 1900. One day in San Francisco, he was sharing about Jesus at a Salvation Army meeting on a street corner, uh, which was a familiar thing to do back then. And um, as it ended, a well-dressed man handed him a card. On one side was the man's name, which Ironside immediately recognized. This man was one of the early socialists who'd made a name for himself, lecturing not only for socialism, but also against Christianity. And Ironside turned the card over, and he read on the other side, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question, Agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I will pay all expenses. Ironside reread the card and then replied something like this. He said, I'm very much interested in this challenge. I'll be glad to agree to this debate on the, uh, on the following conditions. Namely, that in order to prove that this gentleman has something worth debating about, he will promise to bring with him to the lecture hall next Sunday two people as proof that agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character. First, he must promise to bring with him one man who for years was what we commonly call a down-and-outer. I'm not particular as to the exact nature of the sins that had wrecked his life and made him an outcast from society, whether a drunkard or a criminal of some kind or a victim of his sensual appetite, but a man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself but who on some occasion entered one of this man's meetings and heard his glorification of agnosticism and his denunciations of the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from this meeting saying, henceforth, I am too an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing this particular philosophy, found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hated. Righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life. He is now an entirely new man, a credit to himself, and an asset to society, all because he is an agnostic. Secondly, I would like my opponent to promise to bring with him one woman who had a similar experience. Now, he said, addressing the man who'd presented him with a card and with the challenge, If you'll promise to bring these two people with you as examples of what agnosticism can do, I will promise to meet you at the Academy of Science Hall at 4 o'clock next Sunday, and I will bring with me at least uh, 100 men and women who for years lived in just such sinful degradation as as I have tried to depict, but who have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel which you ridicule. 
I will have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as present day proof of the truth of the Bible. Well, apparently the man who had made the challenge had some sense of humor for he smiled wryly and waving his hand in a deprecating kind of way as if to say nothing doing, edged out of the crowd as the bystanders applauded Ironside and the others. Harry Ironside understood and had experienced that Jesus has bound the strong man. That the kingdom of God has come. The revolution is taking place. The victory has been won, and so it's there for the taking. We may not all be eloquent street evangelists like Ironside was, but we all have opportunities to pray with someone, to tell them about Jesus, what Jesus means to us to point them to the story of Scripture. And as we do, let's remember that it's there for the taking. Because as we wait for Jesus to come again, that's how we wait. We join Jesus in plundering the strong man's house.